welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, it's the minstrel of SoundCloud, the troubadour of transactions, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. How long did you spend? I think you spent longer writing that introduction than I spent writing Jerry Depota's theme song. <laughs> yeah, I, I told you before we recorded that I needed a few minutes, and then it was more like right, 20. Right, it was like, <laughs> I was like okay, I 18 isn't a few, but you know, I'm not doing anything. So I was on thesaurus.com for a while. So we are going to talk later in this episode to Mike Petriello, who writes for MLB.com, and he's going to give us the latest on StatCast, and we're going to speculate about the faraway future of baseball and discuss whether the Rockies have finally figured out Coors Field. But first, we have some business to take care of. It's both new business and old business. It is our weekly segment, What Did Jerry Depoto Do? Hit it. What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? We're gonna talk to Meg Rally about a trade or two. It's what did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? We're gonna talk to Meg Rally about a trade or two. It's what did Jerry DePoto do? So we are indebted to baseball prospectus writer Meg Rowley for being our go-to guest to talk about Mariners moves on the past few podcasts. But on today's edition, we are going straight to the source. We are joined now by Mariners GM Jerry Depoto. And as silly as it's going to sound, I am obligated to ask our traditional question. Jerry Depoto, what did Jerry Depoto do? <laughs> uh, in the last 24 hours, I suppose we've had a... Uh... <laughs> We had a media press conference yesterday afternoon and uh, in the midst of which we placed a claim on Tuffy Ghostwitch from the Atlanta mm-hmm. Braves, added him to our 40-man roster, designated right-hand reliever Jonathan Arrow for assignment. And mm-hmm. I, I guess subsequently, it was a move that was somewhat connected. We we sent, uh, we sent a prospect by the name of Jason Goldstein to the Oakland A's in return for left-hand starter Dylan Overton, added him <laughs> to our 40-man roster, and designated Jesus Sucre. So, typical day in your winter, basically. Scratching the <laughs> Are you up there on the dais of media day, like with your phone under the table, texting in waiver claims or something like that? It's the wonders of the Apple Watch. So, you know, the phone can stay in the pocket uh, on on mute and I can look at my watch and find out what's coming across. But we had actually executed the Tuffy Ghost Witch portion of the, the transaction and even the the his technicality of putting Jonathan Arrow on an on, on assignment before I ever took the stage. We just didn't want to announce it before we'd physically spoken with the players. I, I think that's the right combination of events. So once we got a hold of Tuffy and Jonathan Arrow, we we went ahead and made an announcement. It just so happened that it was after I left the stage. Yeah. Well, when we requested this interview, the Mariners had not actually made any moves since the most recent podcast. And I was worried that maybe there wouldn't actually be any new trades to talk about, but I should not have doubted you. You came through with some trades just in time. And uh, on behalf of all baseball writers, Thank you for doing things during January and for giving us something. keeping the rumor mill afloat. <laughs> yes, <by> single-handedly. <laughs> We're doing what we can. Keep it interesting. Well, so I, I had to ask, did you know from the beginning that your winter was going to look like this? In other words, you know, at the organizational meetings, when you were laying things out, did you say, this is where we want to end up? And to get there, I'm going to have to make a series of small to medium moves, or did this just develop organically? 
Well, I, I would say that it probably predates just our winter meetings, but you know, this goes back to September of 2015 when I first got here to Seattle. Right. You know, we 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 sat down with ownership and we laid out a game plan and and put in I guess in play a plan by which over the course of a couple of years we would we would adjust our team and better better fit it, better suit it to playing in in Safeco Field, which we thought would be enhancing our athleticism, improving our outfield defense. Uh, we wanted to get a little bit younger, but we didn't want to lose the value of the prime years or, or the, 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 the what are continually solid years from guys like Robinson Cano and Nelly Cruz, Kyle Seeger and Felix. So yeah, we, we took that quartet of plus, determined that we'd build around them and try to raise the floor. And, you know, the first year, what we implemented was the idea of controlling the strike zone, getting on base, uh, producing more traffic. And I guess in turn, the expectation would be we would score more runs. And I think that worked. You know, we, we had a variety of of short-term deals with free agents and trade targets like Adam Lind and Deho Lee and Nori Aoki and, and Franklin Gutierrez, Chris Iannetta, et cetera. So we kind of knew going into this offseason that, that there would be an array of other moves, largely because we had to fill those voids that were created by one-year players who'd gone away. So the type of player we were looking for, that athletic, more defensively gifted, rangy, uh, you know, base running, uh, adept type player that we were trying to achieve, guys like Gerard Dyson and Gene Segura uh, to Mitch Hanniger, Ben Gamble, who we picked up last summer. We were trying to tap into this, this type of player, and that was going to require going to the trade market because, I, frankly, that's not necessarily the type of player that you find in free agency. Typically, free agency is, is uh, for most players, occurring in the late 20s into the early 30s. Most of the players are not of that in a young, agile, athletic ilk. They're on the other side of their career. So you know, we, we opted to go the trade route, and I, I guess it created a bit of a stir it's something actually from a career standpoint that I've preferred. So we, we expected it. We hit the targets we wanted to hit for the most part. And, and, uh, and we liked the roster we put together. And in the process, you've bet big one way or another, whether it's trading away Taiwan Walker or bringing in Drew Smiley or Giovanni Gallardo, you've dealt a lot in players who have a lot of variability or have had a lot of variability from year to year. So how many of those do you need to get right for this to work? And how nervous are you? You know, you sort of hung your neck out there a little bit. Yeah, I, I, you can't really allow nerves to become a part of what you do. And one of the wonders I've, I've, picked up on working in baseball for most of the last three decades is that you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. I made mistakes as a pitcher. I hung a few sliders that I wish I could get back and you're going to make good moves. And, and when you make moves in volume, the way we have over the course of these last two years, you're going to whiff on a few. That's just the way it goes. And uh, it's, uh, it's something I learned very early on in my general career, uh, even back as far as when I was an interim GM with the Diamondbacks of 2010. You're going to make mistakes when you make trades. You're going to make mistakes when you draft players. That's the nature of our business. And it's very easy to to sit on the sideline and criticize what other teams do. And I, I've always coined a term that I heard in the draft room. The very first draft room I was ever in, a veteran scout once said, hey, the rule in here is don't laugh at theirs. If they promise, they won't laugh at yours. And uh, you know, I've, always, I've always kind of lived with that idea that you're going to make mistakes. I'm sure that all the moves we made this offseason aren't going to work the way we envisioned them working. But in I think the combination of players we added, the histories we added, 
and, and frankly, the depth we added. My favorite part about our offseason, you know, in lieu of, of adding quality players like Smiley and Dyson and Segura, et cetera, is the depth we created around our club. Um, you know, we, we are, we're set to line up, I think, the deepest club that, that we here with the Mariners have had in many years. And it's inevitable you're going to run into injury, you're going to run into underperformance, and you're going to run into young players who, who struggle to, to find their footing in the big leagues. And, you know, the, the, the key to the exercise is having a next layer you can turn to. And, you know, frankly, in September of 2015, we weren't really in a position where we had an arm system that was going to support a contending club in the big leagues. And we had a core of players that didn't suggest a tear down and rebuild. So we were caught in a position where we had to find an alternative direction. And this is what we chose. And we added 10 wins last year and we feel like we're every bit that good and, and believe we are better headed into 2017. And since you decided to go the trade route and you've executed so many trades and outstripped even the team with the second most trades by a, a wide margin, what are the secrets to doing that? Whether it's from a workflow perspective, how much do you delegate to other members of your front office to take over these negotiations? You've got all these different balls in the air. You've got players coming and going and one deal is contingent on the next. And how does it work also from an etiquette and communications perspective? How do you propose trades all the time without getting on anyone's nerves? Or what's the best way to, <laughs> to go about not being the, the guy everyone has in their fantasy league who's, you know, proposing trades every every day and demanding answers and getting on everyone's nerves? Yeah, I, I guess it's from a personality standpoint, I keep in touch with, uh, with various in the league. We've, you know, and, and in the league, there's so many, there's so many really good guys that do this for a living, you know, general managers, front office members, et cetera. And, and I have relationships with many of them. It's not hard to, during the course of the early days of the off season, when once the regular season ends a practice that I employ and, and many others around the league do as well, is just calling each of the clubs, checking in with what their general off season plan might be, express who you're interested on their team, uh, tell them who you're willing to discuss on yours. And, and, and one of my standards, and, and I think it's, it's not uncommon around the league, is to just make people aware of there's, a, there, there's nothing that you can suggest that, that is not some consideration. It may be a very quick no, or it may be that we get a deal done in five minutes. But, uh, you know, you, you stick with it. Everything we do in a front office is collaborative. We've got a, we've got a big group in baseball operations. We work on everything together. Uh, there's some, some trade discussion or research is delegated. We choose our targets. Sometimes I, I will I will just cast out an idea. Uh, guys, look at so and so. Bring up a name, and I'll, I'll I will actually cite a, a, an instance from my time with the Angels. We, you know, Matt Shoemaker had burst on the scene in 2014 as a as an older rookie, had a fantastic year for us, and you know, placed in the Rookie of the Year voting was a was a really uh, positive addition for us, kind of out of nowhere, and. And I said to our baseball ops group, guys, take a deep dive, find the next Matt Shoemaker, go find guys in the minor leagues that are the next Matt Shoemaker. And, and they did a fantastic job. And, and out of that deep dive was born a trade that brought us Nick Tropiano, who, you know, prior to his surgery with the angels, I think showed every bit of being similar in, in ilk to, to shoe. And, and frankly, one of the other guys we had, had turned over at, at that time was Chris Heston, who we recently acquired from the giants. And, and, you know, kind of guys who had been through uh, AAA, who had performed, who you, if, we, if you take a deep dive, look deeper into the metrics and, and how they're doing it, the, 
and the and the variables that we'll look at now, the spin rates and and an extension on a fastball and and different elements that really didn't come into play 15 years ago. Uh, I, I feel like it's an interesting place to work, and it's always uh, it's active. Nobody comes to work here at Safeco Field thinking, "Ah, oh, here comes another boring day." The guys are always engaged, involved, and and we're finding a way to make ourselves better. Sort of related to that is the idea of everybody in every front office does this. We in the media do this, but you know, you're sort of treating these players as commodities, and you're, I believe, unique among current uh, major league general managers in that you actually played in the big leagues. So you know, when you have to call a player, tell him you know he's got to pick up his family and move. Is there anything weird about that to you that you're the guy making those decisions now, or is it just something you've had to put out of your mind? No, I, I mean, I, I have had the, it, probably a great experience of having been traded twice myself. So I, I've been on the receiving end of that phone call. And, and I know I was traded once from the Cleveland Indians to the New York Mets and then from the New York Mets to the Colorado Rockies during the course of my career. And, and then I invited each call with, uh, I, I wrapped my arms around it. Hey, this is great. And my, my thought was somebody wants me <laughs> and, you know, and, and viewed each step as a new opportunity. And I guess most players do view it like that. And, and, you know, change is not always a bad thing. And in some cases, obviously it's a, a little more difficult for, for a player to absorb, particularly uh, players who you originally drafted and developed and have been in your system for a number of years. But in, in today's game, they understand. And, you know, it's 30 teams. It's more of a fraternity really than it's ever been. Even when I played the game, uh, we, we knew each other. We, we could visit socially. Today, it's 30 teams, and uh, you'd be, you have a hard time sometimes defining where the line ends, where one team ends and the other begins, because so many of the players know each other with roughly 40-plus percent of the league hailing from outside the U.S. and smaller countries where, where they, just, they, they have a much more familial feel about them. players from the Dominican Republic and Venezuela, especially since 2006 with the advent of the WBC. Players are closer now than they've ever been. They are very accepting of the idea that they're going to go somewhere else. And everywhere they, they're, they're going, they know someone. And that creates a degree of excitement. So I think my, my favorite has been I, on two occasions. I, I've had one player, when I called and told him that, that he had been traded somewhere, he said, ah, I would have traded me too. And, and got a good <laughs> laugh out of it. And, and uh, you know, most recently, we traded Seth Smith to the Baltimore Orioles. And, and, and I love Seth. I, I, I appreciate what he does. I think he's an excellent player. He's a, it's a really good platoon bat. And, and he did a great job for us in 2016. And, and I explained to him what we were doing. I think one of the things that's, that's good about those discussions is, is whether it's, it, it, it's yeah, Friday, January 27th, or it's midsummer at the trade deadline. I'm always as transparent as I can be with players and just tell them exactly what their situation is and exactly what we're doing. And I did that with Seth and, and he said, Jerry, you don't need to explain to me. I'm as pragmatic as anybody. I get it. This is, I've been traded before. Um, you know, I'll invite it. I really appreciate the time. And, and he was appreciative of, of the time he had in Seattle. Most players feel that way. Very few of them are going to, you know, scream and yell and slam the phone down. There's that, that just doesn't really happen anymore because families are much more mobile and, uh, and and I guess transient than, than they've ever been before. So when you were with 
the Angels, you know, you were not known for being such an active trader. So what is it apart from the fact that maybe Safeco is easier to exploit than that ballpark was that made you decide that this was the way to go? Was it something to do with just how the team was positioned kind of on the competitive curve and the long-term commitments and the short-term commitments? And then secondly, when you make this many trades, and I think you're pushing 40 or so trades since you took over, all of your trade partners are smart and competent and they have their own excellent scouts and analysts and you know you're not going to make 40 trades and outsmart the other team every time. So what is the key to targeting players who I guess are worth more to you than they were to their old team and and vice versa if that's the the secret to not paying some transaction cost every time you make a move? Well, I I think to a degree you expect to pay a transaction cost every time you make a move. That's just the, the cost of doing business, which is probably why we're a little bit more likely to make a trade than, than someone else's. There's, when I cross the bridge, I expect to pay the toll. And you know what we're trying to achieve by crossing to the bridge is recreate the way a roster plays. So both of the questions you asked are effectively interlinked. And what we're trying to do and what we have been trying to do since I got here is we took what was the oldest position player team in baseball. That's irrefutable fact. We were the oldest position player club in baseball last year. We want to get younger. We want to get younger while not sacrificing the, the the still strong years of that core group. So we were trying to elevate the floor. We needed to build a bridge to get to a more athletic, younger team that was maybe more defined by on base ability, speed and defense, which we thought better suited Safeco Field than just raw power, right hand hitters, high strikeout, low walk types, which is what we had. So in effect, there's while I don't wake up in the morning thinking what magical trade can I make today? I don't think we outsmart anybody in any deal we make. We're just trying to resituate our roster to better reflect the type of team that we want to put on the field. So we may, in fact, do nothing more than make a marginal bump or that's it, nothing more than an even swap where we're sending them a, a player of a certain style that, that may not fit as well for us, but fits better for them. And, and we are then able to create space or fill it with a player who better suits our needs. And and like I said at the at the start of the conversation, with the type of team we wanted to put together, you can't snap your fingers. And I guess the, the if I if I go back to September of 2015, I I, I got here on September 28th, inherited a 40 man roster, which I guess now famously I've been made aware has nine players left, or as of yesterday, eight <laughs> players left. And uh, you know of the of the eight players, but they're eight. Very good players, you know, Mike Zanino, Hisashi Okuma, the four guys I mentioned. It's it's a good group. And, you know, we, we decided to build around that group. But more importantly, if I dial back to that 40-man roster as it sat on September 28th, as season ended, minus the pending free agents, we had 36 players on the 40-man roster. Of the 36, nine were out of options and 15 were coming off a negative war season. I think about that. It boggles the mind. You know, 15 negative war value players on a 36-man roster, nine of whom or of the positives who are out, and two five-plus arbitration players. We had a team that finished 13th in the league in runs scored, 11th in on-base percentage. We struck out a bunch. We hit homers, and we didn't walk a lot. So we wanted to transition that roster. It only stands to reason that it was going to take a makeover of probably what you've seen. I, I didn't expect that it will be 40 trades and a hundred some odd players, 
but we tried to navigate ourselves to the position we're in today, which is at season's end this year, we had a 36-man group after removing pending free agents, only two of whom placed a, a negative war value. We did have more control over the players. And, and as we head into spring training, we've only got three players out of options and all three are established major leaguers now who are on our club with, with guaranteed salaries. So I feel like we've transformed the roster into something more manageable and sustainable. We have, I, I don't want to say we've eradicated strikeouts, but we've reduced our, our swing and miss. We've increased our ability to, to get on base. And as a result, I think we, we scored more runs. And here we finished third in the league in run scored, third in the league in ERA. And we feel like the, the reason we were short in our playoff pursuit was that we just weren't very good defensively and we weren't good on the bases. We didn't have range. And, and some of that is attributed to the fact that we were a little bit of an older team and we needed to get younger. So enter Mitch Hanniger, enter Dan Vogelbach, enter Gene Segura and put guys in a place, enter Ben Gamble, Guillermo Heredia, et cetera. And we, we feel like we got a little bit more versatile along, along the way. And, and hopefully this is the right mix because there's still an awful lot of good baseball left and guys like Cruz and Cano and Seager and Felix and Kuma. And we want to give those guys a chance to be a driving force behind what we think is now a, a, a deep 40 man roster. So you alluded to both of your previous GM stints in Arizona and Anaheim, and both of them had, you know, there were unique circumstances surrounding both of them. But what do you take from those first two stops to this job? How are you smarter now than you were five years ago? Well, you know, when I when I first took the the position in, in the summer of 2010 with Arizona, it was very unique. I, I, I inherited the job on July 2nd and what was a, a, a really rough season for us with the tax and and we were headed toward a, a top five draft pick <laughs> and we had a handful of stars on the roster quality major league players with a need to resituate so it's a you each roster is unique to itself you know that diamondbacks roster required resituating moving moving in a different direction you know so we we moved Edwin Jackson. We moved Dan Heron. We, we moved the, the veteran pieces that, that had high value at the trade deadline. And we brought in young players that wound up doing a heck of a job for us, either there in Arizona, continue to do it there in Arizona, or turned into uh, a, a piece of a puzzle that, that brought someone else in. And, you know, guys that come to mind are, are Daniel Hudson and Patrick Corbin, Tyler Skaggs. And, you know, we, we refunded a minor league system. And you know, the, the result was, we sent payroll. We took payroll down. We added talent to the system. You know, a, a, a normal what wound up being short-term rebuild, and went out and won 94 games in the division the next year. So, I think it was the right move to make. I'm I'm proud of what we did, and it was very different from what I would do in Anaheim or have done here in Seattle because the roster screamed for a different strategy. And you know, you can go in, and if you only have one trick, <laughs> and then you only have one idea then you can only manage one style of, of team or front office. And, and I wouldn't want to be that myopic. I would like to be as creative as you can be looking at each roster and, and determining what the needs are or what the direction should be and go in that direction. When I got to Anaheim, we had a very talented team and you know, a really strong foundation of players who were in the primes of their career, you know, a very high payroll. And the obvious thing to do was to, to add around the edges and those were the, the, the things I was proudest of. 
with the angels. We had to be creative. Uh, we were, we were a high payroll with, with very little room to add after 2012. And, and we had to find small ways to win on the margins. And that's yeah, a, when you can small trades, when you can pick up Ernesto Freire, and I know it doesn't, doesn't sound great at the water cooler, but when you can pick up two and a half years of a, of an above average performer who contributes 75 saves out of nowhere, you know, uh, the, the small trades that bring you advantage in a moment, even if it's, if it's in and out and it's one year, it's a year that buys you a bridge to, to a younger player or a draft. You, you continue to move the ball down the field, even if at times it looks like three yards in a cloud of dust before you realize that you're in the red zone and you have a chance to score. And, you know, I think with the exception of the 2013 season, which some due to failed trades, some due to failed signings, some due to injury was a rough year for us. Um, and it, the, the years before and since, I feel really good about the product we put on the field. I feel like we're an entertaining team. We contend, we stay in a position. That's what I want the Mariners to be. We have an 86 win season in our background. We're going to move on and we look forward from here. And the goal is to be in a position to sustain that through what we build in the system. You know, and frankly, I know I'm, I'm not immune to it. The idea that we have, I mentioned it yesterday during our media time, the idea that we have stripped our minor league system to do this is just wrong. It's a, it's a false narrative. We have, we traded Luis Gohara in the, in the deal with Atlanta that brought us Malik Smith and Shea Simmons, uh, which ultimately turned into part of the deal that scored Drew Smiley. And, and prior to that, we didn't move a single prospect that, that appeared in our top 10 by any measure. So we have, we have actually added players like Mitch Hanniger and Dan Vogelbach and Ben Gamble, um, Posey and Rob Whalen to our mix. Now Dylan Overton that, that on some level fit among our top 15 or 20 prospects. And in some cases, top 10, so we feel like we're, we're addressing our minor league needs and our long-term sustainability while we're trying to compete and, and really get where, get where the city of Seattle deserves to be is in a postseason. And last one for me, Scott Service talked yesterday about getting buy-in from pitchers on, on shifting. This has been a problem from front office to manager to players since, you know, that we've talked about since Moneyball pretty much. So does your player background help you communicate that with managers and players? Or do you have some other way around that problem of getting buy-in uh, to make sure everybody in the organization's on the same page? But you kind of along the lines of, you know, you mentioned the, the trade, the, the idea that you're going to win everyone. Every staff is going to be a little different. Every baseball person is going to, to read and perceive things a little differently than the other. It's why you want diversity. I, I, I'm really fortunate to work with Scott, the staff that we've put together. They, they have a general understanding and belief in, in what we're trying to do. And, you know, last year when, when we started this in spring training, and, and implemented our shifting programs, I, we, we didn't realize how aggressive we would be willing to be. And you know, that's a, it's a credit to Manny Acta, uh, who really bought in to the defensive shifting, the numbers and how you could create outs. And, and Scott really bought into it. And some others as, as ready to jump into the pool, but they started to see the results and, and all of a sudden they were in. And, and the players bought in. The players here were ready for something new and they were ready for a twist. We gave them a twist. They had fun with it. And I think last year we had, and I'm going to spit out some numbers that may or may not be accurate, but they're in the right ballpark. I think we were 13th among American league clubs in defensive runs 
we were 13th or 14th in overall using it. We just didn't cover ground. We, we had, we didn't have a great deal of range. So the way we combated it, we can't just snap our fingers and create a rangy team. Uh, it, that takes time. In this case, hopefully it, it, it took 16 months, <laughs> but in, in 2016, we had a less rangy team. So the way we answered it, similar to looking at each roster as an independent study was to be a very aggressive in how we shifted. And I think we were number two in major league baseball in extreme shifts last year. And I believe we, we led major league baseball in runs saved due to extreme shifts. So, you know, we took, we took what we had, we, we tried to, to use our mind and apply it to the physical abilities of, of the players we had on the roster. And it worked. Our pitchers adapted to it. I think they, they really liked turning around and seeing a player standing where the ball was being hit at a more frequent uh, pace. And, and along the way, I can say as having been a sinker ball pitcher who, you know, the ball was in play a lot, there's, you're going to give up some where you, you shake your head and think that's where the second baseman's supposed to be. But uh, over time, you know, big data works out. And, and I think we, we got the buy-in from our, from our coaches. We got the buy-in from, from our players. And as the season wore on and they saw the, the result, they, they rolled right along with it. And, you know, they, you might have got the, the quick stink eye in April when you were asking everybody to shift to one side or the other. But, you know, by the time we got to midseason, they were doing it on their own. They didn't even need to be positioned. I'm sure you saw the study that was released a few days ago about jet lag and its possible impact on players. And, of course, the Mariners fly more miles than any other major league team. So I'm sure that you saw this and I'm sure that you've done your own research and come to your own conclusions. So do you think that there is a, a significant handicap there? And if so, have you and can you do anything to counteract it? I think there's definitely a, uh, an issue there, particularly for us in Seattle. I, I mean, we are actually projected in 2017 to not be the team with the most airline log, which is which is going to be an all-time first, I, I believe, uh, or the first time in better than a decade that the Mariners haven't led the league in, in miles traveled. And the price that we're paying for that is, as you can see by looking at our schedule, we have multiple lengthy Eastern road trips. So some of the ways we've opted to combat that, uh, on almost every occasion, we fly our, our next day's starting pitcher out early. On any day we can, where we have a day game buffered by an off day, we, and we are traveling east, we leave after the day game so that our off day is spent in the Eastern city so that the players can acclimate themselves. And I think it's, it's funny. And this is obviously small sample and who the heck knows what small samples mean sometimes, but uh, we have done, you know, big data studies. We have looked as deep into this as anybody because of the nuances of being in Seattle and it probably spent more money on sleep studies and, and travel studies than anybody. But last year, just trying to make those subtle adjustments, moving the starters out early, traveling as a team, I think we were able to do it four of nine times. You know, we, we played nine different games with the, tra- the club traveling eastward. You know, and, and during those nine games, we were five and four, and our starting pitcher r- registered a, a roughly 349 ERA, which was you know, effectively about seven-tenths of a run lower than it was for the rest of the year. <laughs> so I think we were able to combat it in, in the short term. And at least in a small sample, we were able to make a difference. I think we really only had one poor start in nine outings in those situations. And hopefully those subtle 
you know, I guess nuances, those subtle adjustments that we're able to to make with the roster make a difference for the players because it, it's always all about the players. Okay, and very last thing, when you were with the Angels, Scott Service told my former podcast partner, Sam Miller, that from time to time you like to do your own studies to just sort of lock yourself in your office and roll up your sleeves and open up a spreadsheet and do some data entry and run the calculations yourself. Do you still do that or have you given up on number crunching and delegated to your quantitative people? Uh, I will say that I do it. Uh, I still do it. And, and it, <laughs> I think it, it, they get a kick out of it, but the, you know, at the end of the day, they're, they're doing it too. And my, my reason for doing it that way. And I've said this for years is you gotta know my very first day in scouting, I, I was, I had just retired as a player in the spring of 2001. And I shifted five days later, I was sitting in the stands with a radar gun and a watch and and a scout from another team turned around and asked me, he said, Hey, Jerry, what's the on-base percentage in the American league today? And I said, spring training. It's a a bad question. And he said, he said, no, 2000. What's, what's the the, the on-base percentage in the American league? So I, I took a rough guess. I said, ah, 342, 343. He said, you're guessing. And I, I said, of course I'm guessing. How close was I? And 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 he said, at the point, you gotta know. And and I never forgot that. My and, and he's he's a good friend to this day. And the reality is that he rarely knows, but it, it, it put me in a position <laughs> where I wanted to make sure that I knew. <laughs> and uh-huh. uh it's I think it's uh it's served me well. I, I enjoy doing it and oddly enough, you know, a cup of coffee sitting in front of the computer crunching numbers for an hour really Uh, allows me to to decompress for a bit, which is not a bad thing. All right. Well, I wish we had time to quiz you on league averages and see whether you actually know all the (laughs) answers, but we've kept you long enough. So I think we can retire the what did Jerry DePoto do segment now. We can't top this, although I'm sure that you will continue to do things. (laughs) So Jerry, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. All right, after a word from our sponsor, we'll be back with Mike Petriello of MLB.com, who does not have his own theme song, but is still a smart guy. All right, let me tell you about Simply Safe. You never know when Jerry Depoto will be trying to trade you, so when seeking home security, it's important that you can rely not only on the monitoring system of your choosing, but also your home security provider themselves. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. Thousands of people seeking home security get ripped off every day. They get locked into long-term contracts with huge checks and no way out. You could call it a kind of robbery itself, and it can cost you thousands. But now there's a smarter way to protect your home. Simply Safe Home Security. This is the company you can trust, and here's why. Simply Safe has no contracts. There's no commitment, no lock-ins, but you still get professional monitoring with police dispatch so your home is safe around the clock. Plus, it's wireless and portable with a cellular connection built in, so there are no lines that can be cut by potential intruders. Intruding is really turning into a tough line of work. Best of all, with Simply Safe 24/7 protection is just 15 bucks a month. Most places charge three times that much. It's unbeatable protection. It's a great value. There are no contracts, so protect your home the smart way. Visit simplysafe.com/ringer to get 10 percent off your system today go now that's simplysafe.com slash ringer okay so we are joined now by our second guest who is i think the writer in the world i most envy 
because of his unparalleled access to stats that I wish I could just roll around in all day and dive into like a, a big hell of pile image, of ben. saber metrics. <laughs> I'm wearing clothes in this image as I'm rolling around <laughs> in the stats somehow. It's Mike Petriello who writes for MLB.com and writes a lot about StatCast and hosts the StatCast podcast. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. How are you doing? So we're going to talk about StatCast. I think Michael's going to ask you about the Rockies, which is a subject near and dear to your heart. And <laughs> then maybe we will speculate a bit about the far future. But the thing you wrote about just this past weekend was about how outfielders position themselves against hitters. And this was interesting to me because it seems like an area where StatCast can tell us something almost indirectly about players, not necessarily measuring how fast they're running or how hard they're throwing, but telling us something about how teams perceive them, which is useful information too. You could go to a Little League game and tell who the good hitters are just based on whether the outfielders back up or come in when they're hitting and maybe the same principle applies in the majors. So what did you look into and what did you find? In the you know most recent season of StatCast, we got a lot out of looking at outfield positioning from the outfielder's point of view, right? So we know Dexter Fowler played deeper, McCutcheon played shallower. Uh, and I thought it'd be interesting to kind of flip that around and actually look at where outfielders were positioned based on the hitter who was at bat. Because you would assume that, you know, Billy Hamilton is going to have center fielders playing very shallow against him and a power hitter like Stanton is going to have center fielders playing very deep. And that was true. And I, I use center fielders as a, as a proxy here because there's less variation, I think, in center field wall distance than there is down the lines. Uh, so that's true. There was a, a really strong relationship, you know, not unexpectedly. But it was interesting to see for me some of the outliers like I went into this hoping that Trey Turner would kind of stand out here because Trey Turner slugged basically like he was Mike Trout, but he did not get played like he was Mike Trout. If you look at the guys who were positioned in a similar way to Trey Turner, we're looking at Eric Ibar, Kettle Barte, and Andres Blanco. I mean, those are slap hitters. Those are guys without any power. And that's where Trey Turner was being positioned against. And I thought that was really interesting. And part of it was probably because he just doesn't look like a slugger, I think. You know, if they don't if they don't really like respect you like that, they might not play you like that. But in his position also, you know, a lot of his power came from Speed. So he would turn singles into doubles, doubles into triples, that kind of thing. So there was really a strong relationship. And I really like seeing how guys maybe aren't positioned the way you think they ought to be just based on their reputation one way or the other. And is that something that you can sort of study longitudinally? Like you think that Turner's coming up even back to college, he had some power, but you know, he was never the Mike Trout kind of hitter. So even if he is changing, it's going to take a while for the scouting report to catch up. So can you study this year on year and, you know, look back through the data in years past to sort of see where these shifts get made? We will be able to, like we only have obviously the two years of StatCast data. So that's somewhat limiting. But I, I think even for a guy like Turner, looking at it maybe month by month, you know, what did teams do when he first came up? And then maybe at the end of the year when he was kind of already producing and then what are they going to do as next season starts? Um, I definitely think there's going to be value there just to see how teams are are changing their opinion of these guys over time. So we had Tom Tango and Darren Willman, two of your coworkers on the podcast last year, and they were talking about what they were working on at the time. So what's the latest? What's got you excited? I know there's all kinds of complexity to figuring out positioning and defense and wall balls and park factors and so many things to take into account. But what are you most looking forward to in the coming season? And what are some of the things that are being worked on now? Yeah, it's a great question. We are working on about 75 different things. Things at any given time. 
Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really nice to be able to just, you know, Tom Tango sits like 40 feet away from me to be able to walk down the hallway and sit at his desk for half an hour and uh, just feel like I've learned something, which is, it's mm-hmm. a great resource to have. So the things we're really le- working on now, I think, you know, defense, outfield defense, that's obviously what everybody wanted from day one. I needed time to learn the data, let the data accumulate. Uh, we're getting pretty close on that. I, I think we are going to have some presentations uh, at some of the conferences uh, later on this winter or, you know, during spring training where we'll be able to really present some of that stuff. But I think you've seen a sneak preview of some of it just in, in terms of tweets, you know, from myself or Darren or Tom, uh, where, for example, we might say a guy made a great catch and that catch had a, an 80% catch rate, you know, or a 10% catch rate just based on how much time the ball was in the air and how far the guy had to go to get there. I mean, I think that's that's a really good way to kind of account for some of the issues that things like DRS and UZR have had in the past, which is that the increase in shifting has really made it difficult on those to account for positioning. And so we'll be able to deal with that. So I think that's going to be interesting, not only because it'll be useful for analytics, but because it's really easy for you know a fan to understand. If you say on TV, well, that ball you know falls in for a hit 90% of the time, but that catch was made. I don't think you need to go a whole lot deeper into the metrics to get that point across, which is really cool. So as you mentioned, yeah, there are some there are some complications here. So, you know, version one of this right now is, you know, how far did you have to go and how long was the ball in the air? Because obviously, if you have one second to get to a ball, it's very different than if you have five seconds to get to the ball. And that's a really good start. Uh, But it's not perfect yet because, you know, there's there's the wall (laughs) and the wall is always uh, an issue for a couple of reasons. Part of it's just because you may not be able to go that full distance if there's a large wall in your way. But it's also because guys, when they get to the wall, they will stop running at full speed. You know, obviously they will start to slow down so they don't smash another wall and kill themselves. So that's kind of, uh, let's say, the version two of it. I mean, that's going to be accounted for. It's not currently, but I'm hopeful it will be this winter. can also account for direction because I think it's a lot harder to go backwards than it is to come in. So those are all things that we can account for. So from the defensive side, I think that's going to be really interesting. The other thing I'm very excited about, both from a hitting and pitching side, but maybe more so from pitching, is uh, just expected outcomes. For years, we've been using batting average on balls in play as kind of a, a proxy, and that's that's cool. But now that we have launch angle and exit velocity, we can really kind of bucket this out and look at combinations of, okay, who gave up not just the hardest hit balls, but the hardest hit balls at the most dangerous angles? Because you can mm-hmm. give up you know, a ball that's 100 miles an hour, but if it's a grounder to Manny Machado, that probably didn't hurt you all that much. So we can really look at the guys who not just limited exit velocity, but limited the wrong types of exit velocity. And so I have, I've had a sneak preview at some of the guys in that list. And, you know, for example, Kyle Hendricks looks like he might actually have a real skill. It's not just the Cubs defense that made him look great. Obviously that helped, but that's the sort of thing that we're working on that I'm, I'm really excited about. You wrote about Ryan Zimmerman, who's one of those guys for whom the interaction between launch angle and exit velocity produces, I was going to say interesting, but maybe bad results is the better way to to put it. You know, how much of, of what you're doing is sort of chasing down out, outliers and like trying to see, okay, you know, this is a unique player or a player who's producing unique results, you know, and going back and sort of explaining why. I think that's a great point. And that's a lot of it because when you see a guy who struggled as badly as Ryan Zimmerman did last year, he was just awful. And you know, he's had all these injuries. And so it's pretty easy to think to yourself, well, this guy's cooked, you know, he just can't do it anymore. But then I was surprised to see he actually ranked pretty highly on the exit velocity list. I, I think he uh, had as many a higher percentage of balls over hundred miles an hour than like Jose Bautista and guys like that. So that says to me, yeah, the bat speed might still be there. So then I had to, to look deeper and go, okay, if he's hitting the ball that hard and he's not striking out an insane amount, how in the world could he possibly have been that on productive. And a big part of it was, you know, a lot of balls hit into the ground. And it's, it's, I think easy to oversimplify and say, we just got to hit it more in the air because easier said than done. Like right. I'm not going to sit at my like desk he and didn't tell think a big leaker either. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but that's, you know, if the question is how do you hit the ball that hard and still fail? I mean, that's how, 
And, you know, whether that's something that a team or a hitting coach can use to sit down and really say, you know, this is what you have to do. I imagine some guys are aware of it and just can't do it. Some guys, you know, really need to have the uh, the data in front of them to truly understand it. I think that's interesting. Um, I know it's not something he can just go out there and say, well, this is what I'm going to do next year. But we have seen some guys do this. I mean, you look at his teammate, Daniel Murphy, and obviously his huge turnaround. And he gave a great quote. I saw him. He was told that his batting average and exit velocity was much higher when he hit the ball in the air uh, while pulling it. So he's like, that's what I wanted to do. And that's exactly what he's done. So I do think some guys are able to make changes like that. Certainly not everybody. So teams have been using some of this stuff for quite some time. Back when I was an intern in 2009, 2010, the Yankees were using expected production just based on hit FX at the time. Of course, they didn't have StatCast and they didn't have all the defensive data that we're getting now. But there's a lot of validity to this inquiry. It's very valuable. I think people like us are totally into it and looking forward to finding out more about it. Fantasy players are probably excited about finding out about it for fantasy. But as a person who's writing for a general audience of just anyone who goes to MLB.com, which includes many casual fans who aren't all that into stats, have you encountered much resistance to the idea of sort of judging what a player should have done or could have done? Because that's the kind of thing that I think rubs a lot of people the wrong way when you start making (laughs) assumptions and adjusting for context and this is what he should have done, but no, this is what he actually did. So what has been the biggest challenge for you, I guess, in communicating all of this or, or the biggest complaint you get in response? Yeah, that's a fantastic point because, uh, you know, I, I spent a couple of years writing for Fangraphs before this, and then I, I came over here and just the, the culture shock uh, was was massive. And I don't mean that internally right. so much as just the audience reading it because there are still, you know, forget StatCast, there's still a sizable amount of people who will come and read the articles that don't want to go further than RBI or batting average, you know? So mm-hmm. there's, we're still fighting the war in some cases that was somewhat won like 15 years ago. So yeah. there is definitely kind of a, I have to find a happy medium, certainly between having some sort of like actual actual databases for what I'm writing, but writing it in such a way that the casual fan won't just like open the page and click it off immediately. And so I think that there's some frustration from the other end too, that I don't go as deep. Like for example, uh, just this week, baseball perspectives put out all their new tunneling stuff, which I thought was really cool and interesting, but the explanations were about a thousand times more detailed than I could possibly hope to go for a more general audience than MLB.com. So there is definitely kind of a push or pull. What I've sort of started to do is in a lot of cases, get across the point I want to get across without explaining it in depth. Like I won't always use, for example, weighted runs created plus I might say, you know, was 10 percentage points better than an average hitter. You know, it's the same point. It's a lot easier to understand. There's a lot of give and take on that. So that does make it a little more complicated, but in in some sense, it's I can't not use projections. You know, when I'm looking ahead to this season, I can't just say, well, a guy hit well last year, so he's going to hit well this year. That's really hard, I think, for a lot of people to understand. But if I'm educating people, then, you know, I think that's that's part of the battle, because as much as I like writing for fan graphs, uh, those people are already bought in. So I do like the opportunity to kind of get some new stuff out to some new audiences. There's so much left to work on. And even all the questions that you guys have come up with so far could keep you occupied for years. But at some point, many, maybe most, maybe close to all of those questions will be answered years down the road. And I'm curious about whether you've thought at all about how you expect baseball to change as a result. How will baseball be different because we will actually have answers to these things? Is it going to further upset the balance between batters and pitchers or run scoring and run prevention? Will it change how teams use scouts, that sort of thing? Have you thought at all about the the long-term implications? Yeah, for sure. And, and you're right. Uh- 
a lot of this stuff, this is a multi-year project, you know, and, and as much as with like all the answers right now, part of the fun is being able to open new questions with every answer we get. So I think you're absolutely right about that. We have seen some of it already. We've seen, you know, exit velocity is now ubiquitous, I think, in scoreboards and TV. Uh, we've seen players talking about launch angle and spin rate. So I think we've already seen that. I, I do like what you said about the, uh, the impact on scouting, because some of this stuff, it really, it's easy to let's say stabilize very quickly. I don't need a thousand pitches to know if a guy is a good spin rate or not. And if you mm -hmm. know if a guy is a good spin rate or not, it's not necessarily, you know, for a fastball that higher is always better. It just, it changes what maybe you should do with a pitch. So if you can go to a young player and say, look, you don't have a high spin rate on your fastball. It doesn't mean you're bad. It just means you got to stop, you know, maybe try to blow it past guys high in the zone for strikeouts. This is not likely to work. Maybe it's more of a ground ball pitch. So I do think that's cool. And kind of in the same way with the outfield stuff. I mean, you might have two guys who are, let's say uh, 50 outfielders on the 20 to 80 scale. And that's great. I mean, that's a one size fits all number, but if we can use some of this data to really break it down into the different things that go into that number, you might say the two guys who are 50 outfielders, well, one's got 70 speed, but 30 route running and the other guy is vice versa. And I can't teach this guy 70 speed, but I might be able to teach the other guy better route running. Uh, then maybe that helps inform, you know, how you approach that player and what you really focus on and trying to improve his game. Ben's been asking a lot of big picture questions, and I want to ask you a very specific question about your story on the Rockies bullpen, which is going to be almost exclusively fastball slider. And it's all like, you know, high velocity guys. And that goes into their their draft class from this past year, which has Riley Pine, who's, you know, throws triple digits and has a good slider and Robert Tyler out of Georgia, who also throws hard. So do you think this is it? Do you think like this is how you pitch in, in Coors Field? I think that's a great question. I think it's it's probably the best idea that they've had in the that franchise's history. I mean, it's it's not as simple as saying have a fastball and slider because obviously you need to have a good fastball and slider and be able to command it. But what I, what I do like is, you know, for years, guys who have a curveballs, they go up to Coors Field and they don't throw the curveball and they focus on other things. And, you know, there's merit to that, obviously. But then if you do that, then you've got a guy who maybe relies on his curveball as one of his best out pitches. And he goes up to Coors Field and he's, he's pitching shorthanded. He's not used to pitching like that. So if you're kind of loading up on guys who don't have that weapon in the first place, then maybe they don't have to change their game so much. They're more comfortable. I think there is actually a lot of validity to that. Now, whether it works or not, I don't know. I mean, you don't really want to be counting too much on Chad Qualls and Jason Mott if you don't have to. But I think the idea is sound and I'm really interested to see if it works out. Most of all, I, it, like, it looks like they've got a plan now, which is interesting. For the first time. I mean, they have a plan in that sense. I'm still not so sure about Ian Desmond playing first base. But I do think the plan in the bullpen will make sense. And if you've got a guy like John Gray atop the rotation who has kind of a you know fastball slider combination and uh, Tyler Anderson, I'm a really big fan of because he really seemed to have a skill at limiting exit velocity and the uh, most dangerous angles last year. So the plan seems to be sound. I'm not saying I'm buying them as a, uh, a World Series contender this year. But as you said, you can't just throw stuff at the wall. I mean, you got to have some kind of plan to defeat the course field monster and this seems as good as any so they're an exciting team to watch it does seem like usually when we talk about the practical implications of this data it often is something that will benefit the defense or benefit the pitching and i think joe madden has said something to the effect of all the analytics have kind of cumulatively made defenses better or benefited defenses more so than offenses and there are definitely ways in which you could use this information to improve a hitter but do you think Think that hitters can keep pace as teams continue to mine useful information or eventually will we get to the point where hitters won't be able to counter without some sort of rule change, whether it be to the strike zone or, or who knows what, but something external. Yeah, I think the data has helped the hitters in a sense because 
Well, two reasons, really. One is you get to know a little bit more about the pitcher. You know, if you've always been confused by a guy who throws 89 and you can't touch him, and maybe now you know he's got a very high spin rate, maybe the ball stays up a little bit, maybe that allows you to change your approach against him a little bit. And, you know, like I said, it's not necessarily easy to change your swing path from what you're used to, but if you know a little bit about it, if the ball's going to rise or sink like that, I do think that can help. But, you know, I've also talked to some big league hitters who, who are really interested in using the data on their own swing paths. You know, if, if they've realized they've got, for example, a very high launch angle, you know, too high where they're popping things up, maybe they want to cut down on that uppercut swing. I think uh, Chris Bryant is someone who's talked about that. Mark Trumbo is someone who's talked about that. And it, what's the big story in baseball is the last couple of years is the, the home runs are up. And, you know, I know Ben, you and, and Rob Arthur have done some really interesting work on that. And so I think regardless of what the reason is, I have to think at least part of it is hitters are getting smarter about trying to hit the ball in the air. And I certainly do not put that as the only reason or the number one reason, but uh, I've heard from enough guys who are like, I've learned you can't slug on the ground. I'd rather just not hit on the ground at all. I'd rather hit it as hard as I can in the air, even if that's more strikeouts, because that's where the power is. And that's where I'm going to get paid. So I do think we've seen, you know, changes on field already for both sides of the ball. And I know that you've mentioned uh, occasionally talking to players and giving them advice or information. Has that happened much more often since you've been at MLP.com? Of of course, players can always use their own teams as a resource or their agents as a resource, but do people approach you because you have this data and you're writing about things that no one else is able to write about? Yeah, I think I think players, whether it's StatCast data or just any kind of advanced data, are getting more open to this stuff. You know, uh, there are guys who have kind of grown up with the batting average matters and RBIs matters and nothing else. And now they're realizing that's not what's going to get them paid. You know, so they want to learn what the teams actually value. You know, and sometimes that's just kind of the stuff that we're used to on FanGraphs Prospectus. And sometimes it's more the stuff that's through StatCast. And, you know, every team does get the StatCast feed. And I still get weird looks sometimes when I go into the locker room and ask some certain questions. But I've also had some really good feedback from guys who are fascinated to know more, to learn more about, you know, what they're actually good at and how they can improve. So, you know, I I think everybody's learning. You kind of have to be smarter to survive. It's not just about being skilled because, you know, everybody's skilled unless you're a guy like Miguel Cabrera who can fall out of bed and hit 350. So I do think kind of year over year, we are seeing more and more guys being interested in this stuff. And do you think that you personally could ever reach a point where you know too much and where you have too much information (laughs) and it becomes, you know, because like a lot of people will say, oh, the stats drain all the joy out of the game or whatever. And obviously none of us feels that way. And if anything, it enhances our enjoyment of the game. But there's been so much information lately. And Michael and I were talking last week about the pitch tunnel stuff, which we talked about on the last podcast. And it's so complex. And the thought of trying to analyze a player and suddenly there's so much you have to look into and so many factors you have to consider. And it's really like a full research project just to explain why someone is good or bad at baseball. Is there any amount where you would say no too much? I am overwhelmed or is your appetite insatiable? Well, I would hope that uh, if I would never get pompous enough to think that I know too much, because I know there are many, many things I do not know. But I think you kind of hit on something important, which is that the teams that are really successful with this information is not necessarily the the teams with the smartest people in the front office, because every team has smart people. It's the teams that can distill this to the players, because you're right. I'm not going to go to a player with a 35 page spreadsheet. Because they're going to look at me like I'm out of my mind. You know, the, the teams that can really get this information to the player, not only in a, in a way that they can understand and use, but also, you know, fairly or unfairly from a source they respect. You know, like if I go and talk to a player, a lot of guys are going to look at me and say, well, here's this guy who weighs 150 pounds and never played. What does he know about anything? 
but you've seen teams, you know, Brian Bannister is a great example, Gabe Kapler, uh, the Diamondbacks who just added Badenhop and, and Heron. They're really taking advantage of getting this information to guys from players they respect. And I think that's really going to be the next biggest change. That's the biggest inefficiency. Okay. And lastly, give us your top or top two or three stat cast heroes, just guys who maybe are not the best baseball players, but they do something that StatCast captures that we couldn't capture before, and you have developed a, a bond with them as a result. Uh, well, if anybody knows me at all, they know I'm going to say Seth Lugo's spin rate on his curveball, right. because that, mm-hmm. that, is, <laughs> that has persisted uh, so much all year, so he is absolutely my number one. And I would also say uh, Gary Sanchez, obviously everybody knows he crushes the ball. He has a cannon of an arm behind the plate. There's a lot of guys like that, but those are definitely the top two that come to mind, especially Seth Lugo. All right. Well, you can follow Mike on Twitter for all the Seth Lugo content at Mike underscore Petriello. You can read him at MLB.com. You can subscribe to the StatCast podcast and get a weekly dose of knowledge. Mike, thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Anytime. Okay, so that is it for today. I am proud of us. We came up with a bit and we ran it into the ground in four short weeks. And you did not make me listen to that song with Jerry DePoto on the other <laughs> line, which I was I was preparing myself for emotionally. Our friend and editor Mallory Rubin was begging you to perform live for Jerry, but you refused. Yeah, that just there are limits probably to, wise <laughs> right limits to which or limits to the degree to which i'm willing to debase myself for mallory's amusement the question is whether he will listen to this episode and hear you sing one way or the other but we'll He's, probably never know he probably knows the uh, somebody knows because Mar- we told him well, i don't think he knows about the song did you that's tell, true we, i don't think we mentioned the song we didn't mention the song <laughs> it's probably for the best that we yeah. didn't I regret not asking him if he has a favorite trade or if he loves all his trades equally. Yeah. Maybe we'll we'll wait for him to make some more. We'll, we'll have him back more, on. We'll have him back on, exactly. <laughs> when he mentioned trading Dan Heron, I was wondering if this was the first time that one of our guests had traded another one of our guests. And I mm-hmm. think I think that's true. So we've had this is this is our third GM, right? That we've had on. Yes, that's right. Cashman Stearns. Yeah. So Stearns signed Eric Thames mm-hmm. uh, just recently, and Cashman signed and then released Cole Figueroa. That's right. And Stearns was also in the Astros front office when they drafted Alex Bregman, but I think this is the first time that one of our front office guests has traded a a player guest. So yeah. we're making history in, in all sorts of ways on the podcast this week. Yeah. Ringer MLB show's transaction tree is getting more and more complex. All right. So we will be back next week without a Jerry DePoto segment, most likely. I hope. <laughs> Unless he goes really crazy. If he, trades, but... if he trades Kyle Seeger, I think that's the... Oh, yeah. Well, then we'll have to have Meg on just for therapy and counseling. But... Yeah. All right, so we will talk to you all next Monday. I'm about to explain the concept of what did Jerry DePoto do to Jerry DePoto. Good. I'm glad you're taking care of that because I'm just... I just can't imagine doing that myself. Like, <laughs> I was telling Meg yesterday, this is the first time that I've talked to someone I've written a song about since college. <laughs> How did it go the other times? Uh, well, she married me. So oh, that's okay. All right. Other times, less, <laughs> less good than that. <laughs> I believe Jerry's taken. Yeah.
Uh, so just a, a bit of background. This is silly, but for the last few weeks, we've been doing this recurring segment called What Did Jerry DePoto Do? Because you have been very busy this month and no one else has been making baseball news. So each week we have uh, had a guest on to talk about what you did, essentially, the trades you made and the import of those trades. So we figured that we would just go straight to the source this week. So my first question to you will be, what did Jerry DePoto do? That is that is quite the, the, interesting by default, we'll call it. <laughs> Fortunately, you made some moves between my requesting this interview and uh, and it being accepted. So <laughs> don't be shocked if there's another before we get off the phone. Yeah. <laughs> 